This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. All right, we'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read the text that we looked at last week. It is uh, truly one of the classic texts on preaching in the New Testament. 2, 1 to 5, Paul writes, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I noted last week that that in this text we see, um, in a sense, the, the next piece of Paul's argument, which is now the foolishness of preaching, which is the demonstration of the power and the wisdom of, of God. We've seen the foolishness of the, of the message of the cross, which is the wisdom and power of God. We've seen, the, um, in a sense, the weakness and the folly of those whom God calls, which is also a demonstration of his power and his wisdom. And now Paul focuses on his own preaching among the Corinthians, which was, uh, according to the standards of the day, absolute foolishness. Uh, he says he was there in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And yet, it was in Paul's preaching of the message of the cross that God demonstrates his power and his wisdom. And uh, so we saw what Paul was unwilling to do. He was unwilling to come to them with superiority of speech and wisdom, that is, with the, uh, with the sophistry and the rhetoric, which was so popular in the Corinthians' day. Paul absolutely refused to buy into, um, uh, in a sense, manipulative speech to preach the gospel. Uh, in fact, he says very clearly in verse 2 what he was determined to do. He was determined to avoid one thing, but he was absolutely determined to preach Christ and him crucified. And uh, Paul makes it very clear that it was both his message, that is the content of what he preached, and his manner, that is his delivery, which, um, which was a demonstration of God's power. And, um, and so when Paul preached, it was, it was a simple, direct, straightforward proclamation of Christ and him crucified, no hat tricks, uh, n- nothing glitzy or glamorous, just preaching a crucified Christ in a crucified style, and that was a demonstration of God's spirit and God's power, because when that word went forth, people were converted. People were brought under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for sin. People were awakened to new life in Christ, which is, when you think about it, 
um, preaching is a redemptive supernatural act. It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't look like it. uh, And yet God is pleased to demonstrate his power through the simplicity of his word preached. And so Paul then in verse 5 makes it very clear the reason why he avoided the sophistry, the uh, wisdom of word and opted for preaching nothing but Christ and him crucified was so that at the end of the day, people's faith would not rest on the wisdom and the fads and the trends of a human being, but rather would rest on the power of God. And so, uh, tonight what we're going to do is we're going to dig a little deeper into this expression that we see in verse 2. I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him having been crucified. We're going to look tonight at what it means to preach Christ. Now, let me just give a shameless plug. If this subject interests you, what's the date, Jason, for the Spurgeon Seminar? Okay, on September 23rd, we do a Spurgeon Seminar, and it's going to be on this very kind of uh, subject, all right? And so if this seems interesting to you, come on that Saturday. What's that? What did I say? September? Everybody here knew that I meant January, right? You, you weren't, I, we, we, we don't plan necessarily that far ahead. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to start tonight by looking at a number of passages. So I hope you're, uh, I hope you're ready to turn to some texts. Uh, we begin, first of all, with the center of Paul's preaching. Now, in a real sense, we start with 1 Corinthians 2 2, because uh, that is, in a sense, uh, sort of an apostolic manifesto of his intent in ministry. Determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But that's not the only place where Paul talks about the center of his preaching. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, going to have to try to uh, stay a little disciplined so that I don't preach every text that we look at because that's what I want to do. These are all wonderful passages. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him, that is of Christ, in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, I would also, I would suggest to you that this is uh, another crucial text that is uh, descriptive of the way that Paul saw his own ministry. Now, I have to point something out here, and that is, New American Standard says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And that makes it sound like 
Paul views himself as being led in some sort of victorious triumph as if he's a conqueror. And that's, that is not the meaning of the text. It's better translated, he leads us in triumphal procession, but then you have to understand triumphal procession from the first century Roman world. Paul is not presenting himself as being led, um, in a sense, in some uh, parade, victory parade, but rather to be led in triumphal procession was actually to be led behind a conquering general as a prisoner of war being led to death. That's the way that Paul views his ministry. That's the way Paul views his life. He has been conquered by Jesus Christ, and he now has a a, a life of being led as a slave of Christ, a prisoner of war, so to speak. And of course, Paul's life he sees ultimately leading in being poured out for the sake of of Christ. Paul did not have some sort of triumphalistic view of his own ministry and his own life. Rather, he saw suffering and death as part and parcel of what God would use for the furtherance of the gospel. All right? So Paul says, thanks be to God. What a strange thing to give thanks for. I thought it was strange that David gave thanks for the Corinthian church in in our prayer time. I've never heard anybody give thanks for the Corinthian church ever. Tonight was a first, okay? But what Paul does is even stranger than that. Thanks be to God who leads us in this triumphal procession as as conquered foes being led to death. Thanks be to God for that. Right, And then he says that as he's being led in this triumphal procession, there is a manifestation of the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ in every place. So everywhere that Christ leads Paul, there is this aroma of Christ that, that, that Paul emits in his ministry. Okay? Paul's ministry has a distinct odor about it, and it is the aroma of Christ. Now, what Paul then says, which of course is, is, is in a sense a reference to his life, his ministry, and his preaching, all right? Then what he says is that we are a fragrance of Christ to God among both those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, the aroma that we emit is life unto life. To those who are perishing, it is the aroma of death unto death. Now, the important part about this is that Paul does not see it as a part of his job description to change the smell of the, of the message in order to win people. His goal is not to try to change the aroma so that it won't be an aroma of death unto death. Paul understood that he was called simply to be faithful in proclaiming a simple message of the gospel. And he also knew that he was, he was not supposed to tamper with that in any way, but rather what he was to do is he was to emit the aroma of Christ. And for those who are being saved, it's life. 
But to those who are perishing, it's death. And then verse 17, Paul makes it abundantly clear that we're not like many who peddle the word of God. So just like we have um, uh, hucksters today that are peddling the word of God. Paul had them in his day. And of course, the peddlers of the word of God, what do they want to do? They want to change the smell so it's very, very pleasing to as many people as possible because the more pleasing the message is, obviously, the more popular it can become. The more popular, the more people you see the way that that works. And Paul says, that's not my job. My job's not to peddle the word of God. My job is to do what? Is actually from sincerity, as from God to speak in Christ in the sight of God. What Paul's saying is, is that as, as I preach, as I, as I go around as that, as that conquered uh, person who is in being led in triumphal procession, my job, my, my ministry is to speak from sincerity and earnestness and to speak as I have, as if I'm speaking to an audience of one. Paul says, ultimately, there's only one person that matters when I open my mouth, and that's God. And so I speak as from him and in his sight. Don't you wish that that kind of conviction would, would, would grip pastors across our country? Chapter 4, Paul says, verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So once again, what is the center of Paul's Ministry, what is the center of his preaching? It is not that we preach ourselves. When we do mention ourselves, we are, we're not the heroes of our own story. We're not the heroes of God's story. We're just simply bond servants. We're lowly bond servants. What do we preach? We preach Christ Jesus as Lord. That's our message. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Starting at verse uh, 28. Paul says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my faith, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so as Paul is describing his own ministry to the Colossians, who had never seen Paul face to face, Paul could say, what, what I am all about is, is this. 
we, Paul and his, his compatriots, we proclaim him. That's what we're about. We're about proclaiming Jesus Christ. And then he describes how that's done. And you can see that in, uh, in the rest of the passage, admonishing, teaching, so forth, in order to do what? So that we can present, in other words, so that we can present every man complete in Christ. Paul's view is, is that the ministry that God has given me and the proclamation that I make has a goal. And, and I keep that goal in mind. And that goal is the last day. I'm concerned about what happens on the last day. Do I want to see marriages get better? And the answer is sure. Do I want to see, um, you know, people, um, you know, uh, happy and, and all of the things in this life that, that, that we, uh, you know, yearn for? Uh, all of that's fine and good. But in a sense, what Paul's saying is, listen, ultimately what matters most in proclaiming Christ is that you would be presented as complete in him on that day. I'm preaching ultimately not for the short term, but for the long term. And then Paul says in verse 29, what he's willing to expend for this purpose, presenting everyone complete in Christ. I labor striving, the Greek uh, agonizomai, striving according to his power, which mightily works in, in me. And so the apostle actually had as his passion to proclaim Christ in order that those to whom he proclaimed Christ, he could present complete on that day. Of Second Timothy chapter 3. So Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, You, however, speaking to Timothy, obviously, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the sacred scriptures. Now, by the way, at this point, what sacred scriptures is Paul talking about? The Old Testament. Paul's talking about the Old Testament. Is that not what Timothy would have been taught from childhood? When Timothy was a baby, um, the Gospel of Luke had not hit the bestsellers list yet. From childhood, you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul understands the Old Testament as actually containing the wisdom that will lead you to what? Salvation, which is explicitly in Christ Jesus. Amazing statement, really. Then he says, of course, one of the classic texts on inspiration, all scripture is inspired by God or God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom. So again, that future perspective Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. 
And so Paul was committed to preaching the sacred scriptures which were designed to give the wisdom that leads to eternal life in Christ Jesus. It is these scriptures which are completely God-breathed, and it is these scriptures which Paul then commands Timothy to preach. When he says, be ready in season and out of season, I take that, I take that to mean that Paul is telling Timothy, Listen, your, your charter, your commission is absolutely clear. You are to preach the word. You have no other charter. You have, you have no other permission to do anything else other than preach the word. And you need to be ready to preach that word at all times. And you need to preach it when it's in season. That, in, that is when it is uh, obviously producing fruit and it's, and it's being received and being embraced by people and out of season. That is when it looks like there's nothing going on, when it looks like it's a time of barrenness. Timothy, you don't have a right to change the agenda. And so if you're preaching to 10 people and the same 10 people for 10 years, you don't do anything different. You preach the word. If you're preaching to a thousand and there's a hundred being added every week, you keep preaching the word. By the way, it's kind of interesting, the temptation to do something else in season is just as great as the temptation to do something else out of season. One of the things that a preacher can get paranoid about is, now that I've got them, what do I do, need to do to keep them? And Paul says, listen, your calling and agenda is clear. You preach the word. Now, in, the, in your notes, I have in there also Acts chapter 20, where Paul says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, preaching uh, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the heart of Paul's message. And then... In, uh, in verse 27, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel or the whole purpose of God, all right? So this is what Paul's about. So what we could say uh, is the center of Paul's preaching is Christ. It's the message of God's word. It is salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the message of the cross. It's Christ Jesus as Lord. Paul was all about proclaiming him, preaching Christ, And I would suggest to you the reason why that is true is because the very center of the Bible is Christ himself. Okay, So here's here's a newsflash for you. The center of the Bible is not the nation Israel. The center of the Bible is Jesus Christ. Okay, And Christ himself actually tells us Uh, Remember Luke chapter 24, we're almost done flipping around for a while here. Luke chapter 24, I hope you like looking at these texts though because they're really terrific. So you remember what happens, Um, Jesus has been raised from the dead and some women see him and go back and of course... They're not believed. And then these two disciples 
or basically say, well, we're out of here. Um, This was much to do about nothing. And they're heading back on the road to Emmaus. And as these two disciples are heading back, a stranger joins them. And the stranger actually asks them what they were so sad about. And they ask the stranger, are you the only person that doesn't know what's happened in Jerusalem over these last three days? Tell them about Jesus, a prophet who is mighty in word and in deed. And he said he was going to rise on the third day, but we haven't seen anything. A few women got excited, but um, we're, we're going home. And verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ, for the Christ, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I want to I suggest to you that this is one of the most amazing passages in the Bible when it comes to what the Bible is all about. So what is this stranger who obviously is the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Christ, where does he begin his Bible study to show him, to show these two disciples that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory? Where does he start? He starts with Moses, which means he starts where? He starts in the book of Genesis. He begins in Genesis. I have told you before, I hope, I hope there's like, um, I forget what Mark said, it's higher than high definition, HD, 4K. I hope there's like 4K video in heaven um, because I'd love to sit in on this Bible study and hear the Lord Jesus himself expound the scriptures. Notice, no, you, have to, you have to notice this. All that the prophets have spoken, beginning with Moses, all the prophets explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, he ends up breaking bread. They end up recognizing him. Their eyes are opened. And verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was explaining to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Then Jesus appears later and starting verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses. So the first five books and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And so Jesus tells these two disciples and then later his gathered disciples that he is in fact the grand subject of all of scripture. You might remember in John chapter 5, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but it is these that testify concerning me. If you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me, 
for Moses spoke concerning me. And so the Lord Jesus very clearly tells us that this is not, this is not as if, um, this information is coming from one of the church fathers or one of the reformers or one of the Puritans. The Bible's all about Jesus. This message is coming straight from the mouth of the Lord Jesus that the whole Bible is about Jesus. And so here's the conclusion. Christ is the center and the goal of all biblical revelation. What is the ultimate purpose of the book of Genesis? The ultimate purpose is to reveal Christ. Here's one that will throw you for a loop. What's the ultimate purpose of the book of Ezra? (laughs) To reveal Christ. Now, We're called then to preach Christ. So you say this works. Jesus is the center of the Bible. He's the central theme of the Bible. And the central theme of Paul's preaching, of course, is Christ. Why? Because that's the central theme of the Bible. So we are called to preach Christ, and we're called to preach Christ from the whole Bible. In fact, Jay Adams has famously said, if you preach a sermon that would be acceptable to the members of a Jewish synagogue or to a Unitarian congregation, there is something radically wrong with it. Preaching, when it is truly Christian, is distinctive. And what makes it distinctive is the all-pervading presence of a saving and sanctifying Christ. Jesus Christ must be the heart of every sermon you preach. That is just as true of edificational preaching as it is of evangelistic preaching. You know, I I am uh, fearful to say that a lot of so-called evangelical preaching could be done in a Mormon church and people wouldn't know the difference. Preaching Christ actually should be what is absolutely distinctive for us. So that if somebody was here listening, they would hear enough of Christ, enough about Christ to know that the Christ being preached is not the Christ that they know. If a Muslim was here, they should actually be able to tell the difference between this and a mosque. Unfortunately, the message today is so watered down, we look for the least common denominator that all of our Christ-centered distinctives end up getting washed away in God talk. So what exactly does that mean? That we're supposed to preach Christ and we're supposed to preach Christ from all the Bible. See, this is, this is where, uh, you know, it's one thing. We could stop there and say, amen, that's great. But tomorrow when you're reading Exodus 21... So I, I want to know what this means. We're in the middle of Genesis. When we get to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is only two chapters away, I want to know what this means. Okay, so I have no problem when we get to Genesis 22 and Abraham offering up Isaac. If you can't preach Christ from Genesis 22, it's because you're an idiot or something lacking 
Okay? I mean, anybody could preach Christ from Genesis 22, but what about Genesis 18? What about Genesis 19? Right? So we have to answer this question. What exactly does it mean to preach Christ? Well, let's talk first of all about erroneous views of what it means to preach Christ. Okay? In other words, what it doesn't mean. Now, I want to do this first. That is bring a little historical perspective to this whole issue of preaching Christ. Back in um, the 1930s, something very important happened in the Dutch churches in the Netherlands. You have to remember the Netherlands had a very, very strong Christian heritage. They had a very deep Christian history. And by the 1930s, uh, most of the churches in the Netherlands actually were doing nothing other than preaching what would be called moralism. That is just preaching moral uh, stories, moral lessons from the Bible. Uh, It's what was often called exemplary preaching. Uh, You preach on David and the point is be brave. Uh, You know, you preach, uh, you know, on the... um, uh, uh, the, the, the persons, the characters of the Bible, and you just kind of draw moral lessons from their life. Now, let me just tell you that this is, uh, this is totally alive and well today. Okay. And here's my, here's my pet peeve. It lives most vibrantly in children's Sunday school curriculum. Little moralistic stories that never get beyond be good, do good. Well, what happened in the Dutch churches is there was, let me put it this way, there was an overreaction to the exemplary moralistic preaching, and that overreaction was a, was a surge of what became known as redemptive historical preaching. So they went from the one extreme of moralistic exemplary preaching to another extreme where the the explicit subject of every single sermon had to be Christ. Now, I'm going to say that there is a a kind of so-called Christ-centered preaching or redemptive historical preaching which ends up artificially preaching Christ, okay? And so historically, that's, and, and by the way, that, that movement of redemptive historical preaching has had a huge impact on Reformed churches in the United States, okay? Uh, seminary Jason and I went to uh, Westminster Seminary in California, seriously uh, influenced and impacted by this perspective on preaching. Now, so you go from the Netherlands to the United States, and, and what you have in the, the States is this typical evangelical preaching could be reduced to, um, to basically legalism. And by legalism, I don't mean earn your salvation, but I mean simply preaching on the duties and responsibilities of what you're supposed to do in life. 
In other words, just preaching the imperatives of the Bible, preaching do this, do that. And, and it takes all different kinds of, of forms. I mean, it could be uh, something as, uh, as simple as uh, um, be this kind of husband, be this kind of wife. Now, there is, a, uh, there is a truth that the scripture actually does tell you what kind of person, what kind of Christian, what kind of husband, what kind of wife, etc. to be. But this kind of preaching so emphasizes the doing that it never is connected with what God has already done. In other words, it's do, 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 detached from the done of the gospel. So there's, um, so the, the, the gospel ends up being eclipsed. And uh, so, hey, are you a Christian? Well, of course I'm a Christian. Well, you need to be more holy. How can I be more holy? That you do these nine things and you'll be more holy. And Christ is never mentioned. The gospel is never mentioned. Uh, oftentimes the um, uh, evangelical legalism uh, is reduced to uh, preaching about methods or about formulas or about techniques or, or um, worse yet, trying to achieve those uh, human standards that are appealing to us, by the way, which is still rampant to this day. When you look at what actually is popular today, in books and in preaching, it is this life-centered. And it is human standards of success. And if, if you didn't know that the guy was standing behind a, a supposed Christian pulpit with a Bible, you might think that you were listening to a, a, an Amway pitch. This is what passes for preaching. Techniques, standards, make sure you follow these seven steps to whatever. So when I was a new Christian, what was immensely popular was basic youth conflicts, institutes and basic youth conflicts, and Bill Gothard. And everything is a formula. Everything is reduced to steps. And there's something about that that appeals to us. Because you know what happens? That makes it easy for us. And we gravitate to it like a moth to a light bulb. So how else um, do we, should we not preach Christ? Well, the second would be what, what I would just simply call a truncated gospel. Preaching Christ is not this. Every single sermon, Jesus Christ died for your sins, um, believe in Jesus and be saved. Okay? Some people think that preaching Christ is just, you know, you get down to the end of the sermon and it's always the same. There's a particular tradition where you get down to the end is John 3:16 for God so loved insert your name that he became, you know that he sent his only begotten son so that insert your name could have eternal life if you've inserted your name come down to the front and have eternal life okay. that is not preaching Christ that might be preaching Christ but a steady diet of that is not what the bible means by preaching Christ next and this is 
this is getting a little closer to home, the beeline to the cross version of preaching Christ. Now, you know where I get that phrase, right? From my hero, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon famously said in a sermon on the preciousness of Christ about an old Welsh preacher who uh, listened to a young preacher and the young preacher preached the sermon and it was very polished, very, very skilled. And the young preacher said to the old Welsh preacher, what did you think? And the old preacher said, didn't think much of it. And the young preacher said, well, what do you mean? I thought it was uh, really well done. And the Welsh preacher said, well, there was nothing of Christ in it. And he says, what do you mean there was nothing of Christ in it? He says, no matter where you are in England, you can find a road that takes you right to London. So wherever I'm at in the Bible, I find the road that makes, takes me a beeline to the cross. Now, what this ends up looking like, now, I, in the, I agree with the sentiment. I like the sentiment of that. The problem is, is that sometimes what we end up doing in trying to make a beeline to the cross is we end up missing the actual meaning of the text so that we can make the text say something that it doesn't necessarily say. And so, um, and, and uh, dear Mr. Spurgeon did this um, on more occasions than I wish, but oftentimes he would revert to spiritualizing or allegorizing in order to make the beeline to the cross. And so uh, you're going to preach on the spies in, in the book of Joshua and the red cord let out of Rahab's window is, of course, what? It's the blood of Christ. And you're preaching on Noah and the ark and and you point out that uh, that the ark is covered with pitch and the word covered is kafar, which is the word used on atonement. And so the ark is uh, is a picture of atonement. And, and it goes on and on and on and on. Well, let me just say that the, the, the danger of doing that is that we end up missing the plain and intended meaning of the text and end up relying on how creative we can be instead of just working hard at what the text means. Old Thomas Murphy, who was a Presbyterian back in the 1800s, says, It is not meant that the death of Jesus in the place of sinful men should be the announced subject of every sermon, nor even that his name should be in every point that is handled. This might not always be possible, nor would it always be best, but what is meant, that the salvation of Christ should be the drift, the center, the substance, and the aim, should give tone and direction and impulse to every discourse or sermon. This can be done in perfect consistency with keeping up a proper variety and interest. The whole word of God leads to Christ and sinners in him, but that through thousands of different avenues. Another way that people erroneously preach Christ, and this too is is incredibly popular, and that is what I would just simply call heavy on the indicatives and light on the imperatives. They think that really preaching the gospel focuses almost exclusively on what God has done for us in Christ, and once you start getting into what we're supposed to do in response, you're now getting into legalism or moralism. And so this kind of preaching, which uh, I won't uh, name any names at this point, but there are a number of people that are very popular 
Um, some are played on Pilgrim Radio, John, and they preach a, what, a, a, a gospel-only gospel that has nothing to do with the transformation of a life. In fact, they would say the transformation of a life is irrelevant to the gospel message. It's the indicatives only. And that's not what the Bible means by preaching Christ. So what is preaching Christ from the whole Bible? Well, I doubt we'll get through all of this, but let's begin first of all with, if we're going to preach Christ from the whole Bible, you know what we need to be committed to doing? Preaching the whole Bible. <laughs> um, this, this is a challenge for preachers, of course, because um, we want to be faithful. But here's the thing is we have to preach the whole counsel of God. Now, I'm convinced, and this, this is a hill that I'm totally willing to die on, I'm convinced that the best way to do that, not the only way, but the best way, the primary way, is through the consecutive exposition of God's word. If we're called to preach the whole Bible, then we should be actually consecutively moving through the Bible, book by book. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't times where we do topics and things like that, but I, uh, the, the primary diet of God's people should be consecutive expository preaching. And I have, in a different study, 10 reasons why you should be absolutely committed to consecutive expository preaching, all right? But I'm assuming that since you're here, there is some level of commitment to consecutive expository preaching since that's what we do. Right, And uh, I won't list all the books that we've gone uh, over the years, but it is amazing to me. My biggest fear is that I'll die before I'm done with the whole Bible, which I know I'll die before we're done with the whole Bible. So if we're going to preach Christ from the whole Bible, we've got to see the importance of trying to preach the whole Bible, All right, which means both Old and New Testaments. One of the, one of the major weaknesses of contemporary evangelicalism is our neglect of the Old Testament. And I would remind you that the Bible is one book, not two. And that first two-thirds, which is an incredibly long prologue, is vitally important for understanding the rest. And so we preach the Old Testament. We, in fact, we consciously try to keep things balanced. In elders' meetings, when we have our annual meetings, we'll look at, okay, where have we been? What have we been doing? Is, are there areas of Scripture that, that we've not been uh, uh, studying uh, w- within, you know, we can't say j- just recently because our series are kind of long, but what, was the, what did we do before that? What did we do after that? Uh, are we missing Old Testament wisdom literature? Are we missing Old Testament narrative? Are we missing uh, the epistles? Uh, asking those kinds of questions so that we get a balance, all right? So how do we go about then preaching Christ from the whole Bible? Well, first of all, we interpret the Bible with a Christ-centered perspective. So when I come to the Bible, here's... here's what we oftentimes do. We oftentimes look at our Bibles as if our Bibles are a collection of random verses, like pearls on a string. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to find that nugget for myself today that I can feed on. Now, I'm not saying that if a verse strikes you that you, that, that you don't like 
stick it in your mouth like a, like a lozenge or something. That's great. But a lot of times we completely misunderstand what the Bible is all about, and we look at it as a collection of sayings that we're just trying to find one that, that, that kind of makes us feel good that day. The fact is, is that when we interpret the Bible in, from a Christ-centered perspective, what we're doing is we're paying attention to redemptive history. In other words, what we're doing when we read our Bibles is we are paying attention to the big picture, okay? Because ultimately, there is one story, and that one story may have thousands of subplots, but the one story is the big picture. That's redemptive history. That's the revelation of God's mighty saving deeds culminating in his son. And so we look at the storyline of the Bible. We read the Bible with a perspective on what are the big themes of the Bible because those big themes are going to lead us to Christ. We think of, uh, we think of the structure of the Bible, which is promise and fulfillment. And where are those promises centered? They're centered in Christ. Where's the fulfillment centered? The fulfillment is centered in Christ. As we read our Bible, we're not only getting the, 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 the redemptive historical overview, the big picture, but we're also paying attention to the way that, that the dots connect. So how does, for instance, Exodus 17 point us to the saving work of God in Jesus Christ? I'll actually tell you that I think that it profoundly points us, but you have to connect the dots. What, what uh, biblical scholars call intertextuality, the way that texts relate to each other so that scripture is interpreting scripture. To interpret the Bible in a, from a Christ-centered perspective is when you come to the text, you're asking redemptive questions of the text. If you've ever done inductive Bible study, uh, you know there are certain questions you're supposed to ask when you, when you come to the text. I, I think that there are redemptive questions that you can ask of the text. You could, you could ask, for instance, what does this passage reveal about God's nature? that may require or provide redemption, right? Or you could ask, what does this passage or this text reveal about man's nature that requires redemption? Even if you just took those two questions, those two questions would actually have application to a whole lot of passages that we read. We would look at texts redemptively, not just legalistically. Um, let me just give you an example. So Jason preaches on love your enemies, okay? And which, I mean, who doesn't love their enemies? So easy breezy, no problem, right? Love your enemies, okay? Now, there's a way to preach that, and thank God Jason didn't preach it like this, but there's a way to preach that that basically is, um, this is really hard, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get going, love your enemies. That's what you're supposed to do. Don't you feel guilty that there are people that you don't love, okay? And if you feel guilty about it, here's what you're supposed to do. Start loving them. Okay. Okay. 
even though that would be preaching from the Gospels, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, it's not preaching Christ. You could preach, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And there you have Christ loving the church. Hey, there's redemption. You could preach it in a way that says, husbands, this is how you're supposed to love your wives. Do you love your wives this way? Do you? Come on. Jason, do you love Naomi like Christ loved the church? You are a bad husband. Bad. We're bad husbands. There's the standard, and you don't do it. And so here's what you need to do. Feel bad. And then, of course... In your absolute misery, just try harder. And then the next time you hear that text, guess what? You feel bad. Right? And so there's a way to preach the Bible that is a Christless way to preach the Bible. A gospel-less way to preach the Bible. And so you look at texts redemptively, right? You look at texts redemptively. Love your enemies. Do you know how Jason preached it redemptively? He ultimately pointed us to who? To God who loved his enemies, And gave his son, where in the world do you find strength to love your enemies? It's not from your own guts. It's from what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. So you preach redemptively. How in the world do you preach to husbands who know their dismal failures? You not only remind them of the standard, but you remind them that there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. And in the gospel, there's not only forgiveness, but in the gospel, there's motivation and there's power to actually start moving in the direction that God wants you to go. As you look at the Bible, you look also at the, at the trajectories of sin and grace. I preached through Judges. I didn't mention Jesus 25 times in every sermon. Okay? But you know what every judge does? Points us to Christ on a trajectory. Why? Not because they were awesome leaders who pointed us to the noble character of Jesus Christ but because these were the leaders of Israel who were dismal failures who created a longing in the hearts of God's people for somebody that wouldn't be driven by their hormones or somebody that wouldn't be driven by their ego or somebody that, in other words, it was the failures of the judges that put us on a trajectory to expect something greater from Israel's ultimate king. We should also preach the word in such a way that we point people to Christ. And so Brian Chappell, in a book that's sometimes good and sometimes I don't think good, 
He says, when listeners depart, do they focus on themselves or on their Redeemer? Do they look at their, uh, to their own works as their source of hope or to God's work on their behalf? Has the message as a whole directed people to a fuller understanding of grace of the only hope for their justification and the chief motivation for their obedience? This is the bottom line of Christ-centered preaching. When a sermon is done, do people look to themselves or to God for their security? That right there is it. Right? Some of you are, are sermon sadists. You think that the best sermons in the world are the ones that leave you bruised, bloody, beaten, trampled underfoot to dust. And you're like, wow, that was great. I feel so awful. Now, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is a blessing, but the blessing is not laying in the dust. The blessing is making a beeline to the cross. Okay. And so, when you leave a sermon, are you thinking about yourself or are you thinking about your Savior? Are you thinking about what you're supposed to do or what he has done? Okay. Next, we should preach both the indicatives and the imperatives. We'll stop here. We'll pick it up next week. We should preach both the indicatives and imperatives. So what what I mean by that is if we're going to actually interpret the Bible in a Christ-centered way and then preach Christ, point people to Christ, then what we should be doing is we should be focusing on both together the indicatives and the imperatives. In a sense, the indicatives and the imperatives, that pattern is a safeguard to us. Now, do you know what I mean by the indicatives and the imperatives? I've only talked about the indicatives and the imperatives about 97 times over the last 20 years. Okay? The indicative is what? Grammar quiz. Oh, I should call on some of the kids. Grammar quiz. Indicative. Indicative. What'd you say? You flunked. Sorry. Okay. No? What? What's that? The indicative is what? It's a statement of fact. That's what the indicative is. It's a statement of fact. And when we talk about the indicatives, what we're talking about is what God himself has accomplished through Jesus Christ. Those are the indicatives of the gospel. Okay? And those are not dependent on what you do. The, the, the grand declaration over the indicatives is this, done. That's an indicative, done. Everything you need has been done. It is finished, it's an indicative. Christ has died, it's an indicative. Christ was raised, is an indicative. Okay? What God has done for us in Jesus Christ, those are the great indicatives of the gospel. You've been saved By grace, through faith, indicative. That not of yourselves, indicative. It is the gift of God, indicative. Just telling you what what God has done. God demonstrates his own love for us in this and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, indicative. Those indicatives, those statements of fact are the very foundation of your being, 
The foundation of your being is not what you do. It's what God has done. The foundation of your being, the the gospel, by the way, is not your testimony. The gospel is what God has accomplished for our salvation, objectively and historically, through the person and work of his son, period. Now, my testimony is how the gospel has impacted me, but my testimony is not the gospel proper. The gospel proper has to do with Jesus Christ dying in the place of sinners, being raised up for our justification. The gospel proper has to do with salvation, which is by grace through faith. Okay? Those are the indicatives. You revel in the indicatives. So you take the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. Guess what? All indicatives. But then you have the imperatives. What's an imperative? Okay, what you do, a little more specific. It's the command, the mood of command, all right? In other words, the imperative tells you what you're supposed to do. It's the mood of command. Clean your room is an imperative, okay? Brush your teeth is an imperative, okay? Love your neighbor is an imperative, So this is the way it works. One through three of Ephesians, just as an example, imperatives or uh, indicatives, what God has done for us. Chapter four, therefore, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The imperatives are the therefores of the indicatives. Does that make sense to you? The imperatives are the therefores of the indicatives. And here's the, here's the reality. In the Bible, indicatives and imperatives are never separated. They're never separated. In other words, there are always implications as to how we are supposed to live. And so, preaching the imperatives without the indicatives is legalism. And preaching the indicatives without the imperatives is antinomianism. You keep the imperatives rooted in the indicatives. And so what is my motivation to love my wife as Christ loved the church? What is my motivation there? It is the indicatives of the gospel. And the indicatives of the gospel not only motivate me, but they also empower me to do what God has called me to do. The indicatives are motive and power for the imperatives. The Pharisees majored on imperatives to the neglect of all indicatives. We often do the same. And so the indicatives give us the reasons, the therefores for the imperatives. Indicatives give us the motive. We're going to see on uh, Sunday, we're going to do our memory verse for morning and afternoon sermon, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Here's how it works. Therefore, brothers, in light of God's mercies because of God's mercies present your bodies as a living sacrifice the mercies of God the indicatives 
Present your body as a living sacrifice, an imperative. Because of what God has done for me, I in turn now have an agenda for my life based on what he has done. That actually, if you keep indicatives and imperatives together, you will safeguard yourself from not preaching Christ. So what we'll do is next week we'll pick up and uh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, look at that. He's almost to the end of his notes. How in the world could he talk for an hour on just those few points? Don't worry about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is the very center of all scripture. And Father, we pray for... We pray for those of us who bring your word regularly. We ask that you would give us eyes to see how we can better preach Christ. Father, we thank you that Christ is indeed the power and wisdom of God. And so, Father, we pray that as we press ahead, as we read our own Bibles, as we, as we seek to know and understand you better, we pray that you would open our eyes and, so that we'd be able to say like the disciples on the road, to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn when he explained the scriptures to us? In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.